And that's our new series, The Christian Home, creating relationships, where, uh, creating a, an environment where relationships thrive. Can a home be Christian? Can a house be Christian? Well, a house can't be Christian. And in fact, it's good not to use, a, use Christian as an adjective at all. But, but there is a warp and woof to every home. There's a hum. There's a certain kind of vibe. There's a pattern in every home. And that environment shapes. More is caught than taught. I remember at, at Signal Mountain when I, where I used to serve about 10 years ago, there was a young, young guy who had children who were getting to the soccer scene, and uh, I remember him feeling a sense of frustration about the pace that he was getting drawn into. He, he began to recognize that external pressures were becoming internal, and he said, you know, Tim, sometimes I wish I could just get up in the middle of town and just say, can we all just slow down. The pace and the pattern, the warp and woof, they shape. They shape. You know, we feel as young parents, we feel the pressure to get them into Harvard, to, to, uh, to get them into the pros, <laughs> to, uh, to get them into the, the top social scene. I, I know that. I, we feel that. We felt that. But I can tell you, as the father of triplets, that they come out themselves. <laughs> we got to see them come up at the same time. You know, 75% of our family arrived all at once. And, <laughs> and, and we watched them grow together. And they come out themselves. How do you create an environment that brings out their best? Not just to, to create challenge and discipline and follow through and all the rest of that, but to create an environment where more is caught than taught, just to enjoy them. That's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, starting today with marriage. Now, look, if you're not married, uh, if you're divorced, if, uh, if, if you've lost your, your spouse, if you're young, you know, this is a time for us not only to think about the principles of marriages, and yours in particular, but marriage in general. What it does to secure our culture, our country. Uh, there's some challenges today. We used to think of marriage as, as an us thing. You know, that marriage was an institution. It was something that we, we came to and we, we thought of it as something that was about us. And now we really move towards marriages uh, you can see this in the ways that people respond on surveys, that we really move towards marriage, not thinking us, but thinking me. What am I going to get rather than what am I going to give? And so we begin to even, it, it, it begins to shape our thinking about how we approach marriage. We think compatibility, compatibility, right? And that's, that's important when you're in seventh grade. Okay, it's important that you have things in common. You know that whole thing, well, we broke up because we don't have that much in common, right? Well, you know what? That shouldn't make any difference when it comes to a marriage commitment. Shouldn't make much difference when it comes to a marriage commitment. When I was going through premarital counseling with, with my uh, soon-to-be wife, well, uh, one of the guys who took us through premarital counseling was my mentor, and he was pretty blunt with us. And he said, you know what? I want to I be straight with you. 
And this was a quotation from Stanley Hauerwas just up the road. We were in Durham, North Carolina at the time. And he said, you always marry the wrong person. <laughs> it's kind of a shocker. You always marry the wrong person. Because we are not yet the people that we are called to be. You always marry the wrong person. Compatibility may have, a, may have some place in evaluating marriage, but you cannot test drive commitment. Today, cohabitation is on the rise, and it's not helping. In fact, it's hurting. The, the social science says that you are more likely to get a divorce if you cohabitate before you get married. Uh, now, if, by the way, I meant to say this earlier. This is a no-shame zone, okay? No shame this morning, no guilt. This is not a series where you're saying you're not doing enough. This is not a series where you, you messed up. Uh, I almost said it the way I felt it. Uh, you messed up. This is not a series where, uh, it, for anything else but to say, what direction do we need to commit to today? That's what we're about. So let's, let's spend some weeks talking about the environment in our home today, starting with marriage. Where do we get the power? How do we get the power to go the distance? From the Word of God, John 13, verses 34 and 35. Hear God's Word this morning. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Gracious God, our heavenly Father, you have set for us an example of love. This morning, help us to find the power to love. In Jesus' name, amen. I picked up a book just after college called Men and Women. And I expected it to be about men and women, <laughs> but it wasn't for the first half of the book. It, had, it said nothing about men and women. You know what it was talking about for the first half of the book? Oh, well, by the way, it said men and women, the, the, the subtitle is Enjoying the Difference. Enjoying the Difference. But for the first half of the book, it was all about what we had in common. It was all about our broken human nature. I thought, Where, what's he doing? When is he going to start talking about enjoying the difference, right? But the whole first half of the book was meant to be a wake-up call that we need a greater power than we bring to be able to sustain a commitment, a lifetime commitment. And we have it. We have it. We have a wellspring. What does Jesus say in this passage? He says, as I have loved you. He is giving us a relational commission. A new commandment. Why is it a new commandment? It's a new commandment because he's saying, I want you to watch what I do. The context of this, of course, is Jesus is serving. He's taken off his outer garment and he's washed feet. And he's about to serve all of humanity for all time on the cross. He's saying, watch me. As I have loved you. Now he's creating what he anticipated when he met the woman at the well. The woman at the well. 
She left and she was overflowing with this incredible sense of God's unconditional regard. As I have loved you, so love one another. How? Unconditionally. That's what agape is all about. Unconditional love. So this morning, let's, let's look at, I want to I walk through three different kinds of love, starting with agape love, and how that agape love not only informs it itself, agape, but also informs phileo kind of love and eros love. So let's think of it as three layers of a cake with the plate, agape love, unconditional love, the cake, which is friendship love, and icing, which is romance. All right, here we go. First, agape love. We get the power to go the distance with love, but how agape love really influences our expectations, the way we treat each other, the way we respond, because agape love is the security that says, no matter what. One of my uh, roommates reminds me that in college, I used to say, uh, I love you despite yourself, right? <laughs> he said, well, I loved you despite yourself too, you know? So, I mean, that's, that's agape love. I love you despite yourself. <laughs> no matter what, we're friends for life. Now, he still reminds me of that today. Unconditional love. In other words, stay. Are you ready for this? This is what Jesus models. Stay submitted. You didn't expect that, did you? To stay committed, you have to stay submitted. Let's look at a, an, another important passage for marriage, one of the most important passages for marriage, Ephesians 5. If you start Ephesians 5 at verse 22 and read on, both men and women are going to find that a little bristly. It says, husbands, you know, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. But verse 21, if you back up, it says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So the next verse that says, wives, submit to your husbands, it doesn't say submit. It borrows from the previous line that says submit to one another. It doesn't have the verb in that line. It, it just simply says, wives, to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. We're to submit. It's a mutual submission. Mutual submission. But it also is brilliant. It's brilliant. Mutual submission. But it also calls out the different ways we are to submit. So you're not going to hear that anywhere else. You're going to hear egalitarian where there are no differences. Or you're going to hear some kind of traditional authoritarianism. But Scripture puts the mystery back together. You are at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. To leave and cleave and to become one flesh is to submit to one another. As I have loved you, Jesus, how did Jesus love us? He submitted even unto death. Philippians chapter 2. He didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. He humbled himself. He submitted to the will of the Father for our sake. Not only that, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Stay submitted. Stay submitted. Let me give you an example of how to stay submitted. This is how I like to think of it. Own 100% of your percent in a conflict. You've heard me say that before, right? Own your percent. Own 100% of your percent. Now, here's why I like this. Because 
when, when, when Beth and I are in a, con- in, in a uh, fierce moment of fellowship, <clears throat> I always think she owns 90% and I own 10%. Nobody else thinks that, right? You think, well, y- y'all are more saintly than I am. You think that you own 90%. Is that right? No. We all feel like we own 10% and the other person owns, or at least it's 40, 60, you know, 49, 51, something like that. Own 100% of your percent. Well, you say, Tim, well, what about their percent? What are, you're not in charge of that. <laughs> and isn't that great? It's freeing. You're not in charge of their percent. Own 100% of your percent. What happens when you own 100% of your percent? What happens? It unlocks the relationship. It unlocks the conflict. It allows the other person space. I would even say that part of the differentiation between men and women in Ephesians is that men are to own their percent first. Ouch. I don't like that. That's uncomfortable. But that's how Christ loved the church. He put on sinful flesh. He put on our existence, our human nature. He took it on himself. He, he stepped into the conflict between us and God, and he said, I'm going to go first. Now, you love one another as I have loved you. Now, when you own 100% of your percent, beware of a small three-letter word that will mess up the whole thing. Beware of your butt. But. No, just one T, but. Beware of saying, I am sorry, or I take responsibility, but you might as well just throw the whole first part of the sentence away. You're just stuck in your butt. Now you think, are you really saying this? Yes, because I want you to think about it, and I want you to feel it, and I want you to take very seriously what I'm saying because that is killing relationships. The false humility, the the appearance of taking responsibility in order to earn the right to call someone else out is disingenuous. It's It's hypocrisy. I know this is hard because, you know what, I have to do it too, and I don't like it either, but own 100%. Now you say, well, okay, well, that's in a conflict. What about the rest of the time? What, what does that do? Well, here's what happens. Look, in World War II, during the time when the Nazis were abusing the Jews, by the way that they treated them, they began to regard them by hurting them, hurting them, by abusing them, by killing them, by removing from them all of their possessions and putting them into concentration camps, they began to regard them as less than. The way you treat somebody begins to affect the way you see them. And you know if that's true? If that's true in the negative, it's true in the positive. 
In other words, action brings attraction. Action before attraction. When you move towards that person and you own 100% of your percent and you begin to say, take responsibility, and then you see them reciprocate, Emerson Egrick calls this the, the energizing cycle that that begins to bring life back into your relationship. So agape love is the plate. It secures. It's unconditional. Stay submitted. Second, stay curious. First is stay submitted. Second is to stay curious. That's filial love or phileo. Filial love is friendship love. That's the cake. That's the main thing. Stay curious. Know and be known. Move towards each other To find out more, you're never going to get to the bottom of a person. You're never going to fully understand the mystery of the person that you're committed to. Verse 35, verse 34, and go together. As I have loved you, verse 35, all people will know. What will they know? They'll see They'll see that energy. They'll see that friendship. They'll see that knowing and being known. They'll see a freedom. They'll see a quality of life that is restored that, that Tyler read out earlier from uh, Genesis chapter 2. They were naked and unashamed. There's a sense of this not only mutual submission, but mutual celebration of one another. Stay curious. Keep knowing each other. Keep knowing and being known. Keep discovering. You know, even a conflict can be an opportunity. What I'm saying is true for any relationship, too. You can apply all this to any relationship. A conflict is an opportunity to find out more about the other person. Make, put it in your calendar. (laughs) Put it in your to-do list that says this. The next time I'm in a conflict with somebody, how can I discover something that I didn't know about this other person rather than spending all of my time trying to figure out how that I can win this argument. How can I win the person and not just the argument? How can I find out more, discover more, stay curious about what's going on? John Gottman is one of the nation's experts on marriage. And and he said this, and it sounds very discouraging at first, but it's intended to be a wake-up call to opportunity. He says this, most Conflicts in marriage are unresolvable. Most chronic conflicts in marriage are unresolvable. In other words, you're going to stay constantly trying to pull from the other person something you want different from the other person. Or you can move and say, what is this? What's under this? What's in this? What's, what can I discover? Can I get curious about what? is under this difference. Under the difference is something valuable, something that they love, maybe even a dream or a hope that they have. Go and find it. Go and discover it. Keep discovering and staying curious. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, writing from prison in 1943 to his niece on the the, uh, event of her wedding nuptials. He said this, In your love, you see only your two selves in the world. In your love. So he's saying, in your love, in marriage. In your love, in marriage. Privately, publicly. Marriage has a private and a public face. 
In your love, you see only your two selves in the world. But in marriage, you're a link in a chain of generations, which God causes to come and pass away to his glory and calls into his kingdom. In your love, you only see the heaven of your own happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and humankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It's a status, an office. Ah, I love that. It's beautiful. Vision. That when we know one another in a particular kind of way, a freeing kind of way, a submitted kind of way, a pursuant kind of way, they will know you are my disciples. There's a private, there's a public. Stay curious. Keep pursuing each other. Let your children see conflict. Let them see you resolve it. Let them see you honor one another through it. Not that you don't have it, but that when it erupts, what happens next? Is it an opportunity to stay curious? Stay submitted, stay curious, and finally, stay courting. Stay in courtship. Eros is the icing on the cake. It's the sweet, sweet part. Now, don't worry. This isn't science class, okay? You know, relax. Be at ease. We're talking about romance this morning. We're not talking about the nuts and bolts. We're talking about romance. Stay courting. I remember I, I was having this goofy little freshman year in college debate with a guy who became one of my other roommates. And we were having this silly debate about when courtship ends, whether it ends when you're engaged or when you're married. And we're going back and forth and back and forth. We're walking to the classroom, and this professor who looks like he's older in dirt says, and he's, he's writing something on the, on the chalkboard, and uh, he didn't turn around. He heard us, and he said, Gentlemen, we got, he got our attention. He didn't even turn around. He said, I'm still courting my wife. We never looked at him quite the same way after that. I'm still courting my wife. Didn't end it. Engagement or at marriage, I'm still courting my wife. As I have loved you, so love one another. How does God love us? He pursues us and never stops. He pursues us, keeps after it. A.W. Tozer says this, to have found God and yet to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. To have found God and yet to continue to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Well, I might say it this way, to have been found by God and to know that he continues to pursue me is the fuel of love. It's the power to go the distance. You see, when you're making that connection, you're dipping into the well again. The woman at the well, she was, she was there, you, you know this, she was there at, at, at noon in the heat of the day when nobody else was there because she was ashamed. But then she began to dip into the well of God's unconditional regard for her. And she went out and told everybody. She just opened herself wide open and said, this is me. Y'all been, there's somebody now who loves me. 
There's somebody now who's pouring life into me. And I'm an open book. I want you to know what he's done for my life. See, that's the power. When we tap into it, we can overflow with it. You know, and when you do that, when you continue to pursue, when you know that you're being pursued and you continue to pursue your spouse, here's what happens. You discover. You create the security. You stay, you stay submitted. You create the security. You, you begin to experience from each other an unconditional regard and you begin to open up more and, and each other becomes more interesting to one another. You begin to know things that you didn't realize, appreciate things you didn't appreciate. You begin to see things under conflict that you were just annoyed by, but now you realize that's in a very interesting difference that that makes a much more complex kind of person than I ever understood. And guess what happens? That makes the icing sweeter. It makes romance more complex. You know, I understand that that your olfactory system, your, your nose, can smell up to hundreds of different subtleties. And see, when, when love begins to work this way, plate and cake and icing together, it begins to bring out subtleties. And over time, you begin to appreciate more and more and more about one another. It's possible. You know there's a false narrative out there that says there's a honeymoon phase. You know what that is, a honeymoon phase. And then you step off a cliff and you're wearing the old ball and chain, right? This is, this is, the, this is the narrative of our culture, Scripture says we're capable of so much more. To be able to appreciate and to celebrate the complexities of it. You know, when you enter into a marriage, you enter into a covenant with one another. And it does have a private and a public face. Do you go into relationship expecting to be shaped by God? Yeah, I, I rode home yesterday from the Presbytery meeting eight and a half hours with Ben Lindquist, and we were talking about uh, families who had... We, we talked about everything under the sun, but one of the things that came up that kind of stuck with me was just talking about families who have uh, a, a Downs child and how we both noticed how different those families are and how there's a special quality to those families. And he made this great comment that I loved. He said, um, you know, everybody wants the story, but nobody wants the journey. (laughs) Isn't that good? This is the journey we're called to when we're entering into a covenant relationship. To go the distance is to have a wellspring of power that we can dip into and overflow with. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, would you give us staying power in every relationship, not just marriages, but friendships and partnerships as Christians to be able to stay submitted and to trust that you have a role, that you're working on the other person. Not to be run over, but to expect that you are at work in their life when we are obedient to you to stay submitted. Second, Lord, help us to stay curious and finally to stay in pursuit. That the fulsome gift of this covenant 
that puts life back together would be a powerful witness as we face outward with this commitment to a world that is falling apart. In Jesus' name, amen.